If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Take something iconic, like the all-electric 2024 Fiat 500e. Add something electrica. Bring the swagger. And an Italian icon is remixed and ready to drop with its available premium JBL audio system. Tap the banner to learn more. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SPA, used under license by FCA US LLC. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. The Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71 was a short but bitter conflict. A clear winner, Prussia, would emerge in just a matter of months, but the consequences of the conflict would play out across the wider world over the following century. It contributed to the unification of Germany, upset Europe's balance of power, and triggered a thirst for revenge in France that was widely linked to the outbreak of the First World War more than four decades later. Spencer Mizen sat down with Rachel Crastel, author of Bismarck's War, the Franco-Prussian War and the Making of Modern Europe, to answer your top questions on the conflict. Hi, Rachel. Thanks for joining us today. So we're here to talk about the Franco-Prussian War, which was a bitter clash between two of Europe's great powers in the early 1870s. And it was also a conflict that had enormous consequences for the future of the continent. Now, I want to turn first to a question which was submitted by Hayley Hells on Instagram, and that is, what was the Franco-Prussian War? Now, that's Quite a basic question, but I thought it'd be a good place to start because many of our listeners won't have a hugely in-depth knowledge of the conflict. So I I just wondered over the course of two or three minutes, if you could give us a brief introduction to the war and take us through some of the landmark moments, please. Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me, Spencer. The Franco-Prussian War was a conflict between France and Prussia and its German allies that began in July of 1870 and concluded six months later in January of 1871. So how did it come about? Um, The war came about as a clash between two titans on the continent, uh, Bismarck on the one hand, who is chancellor of the North German Confederation, and then on the other hand, Napoleon III, who is the emperor of uh, the Second Empire in France. And uh, when these two powers uh, went to war in July of 1870, observers thought they would be pretty evenly matched. In terms of weaponry, France had um, certain weapons, such as the, the nascent machine gun that Prussia did not possess. They had the better rifles. On the other hand, Prussia had the better cannon. Prussia was a conscript army, which was it was not clear that that was going to be the wave of the future at the time. France had a, a very well-regarded standing army. But within six weeks, 
France was soundly defeated at a battle called Sedan on September 1st, 1870. Now, that was the, the major battle that really defined the conflict. And we can talk more about some of the earlier battles um, later, but that's, that's, the, that's the primary focus. Just three days later then, because of the sound defeat, Parisians rose up and overthrew Napoleon III, establishing what became eventually the Third Republic in France, but at the time was just simply called the Government of National Defense, with Leon Gambetta as the, as the, the primary political leader. The Government of National Defense decided to keep fighting. Um, they had to bring in new soldiers, they had to rebuild their armies, but through the months of September, October, all the way through January, they continued to fight um, as the battle became increasingly better. Uh, for the German soldiers, they felt like they were dragged down into um, conflict with civilians. Um, civilians felt like they were being invaded. It became a, a more brutal spiral of war. Eventually, finally, at the end of January, France admitted defeat and signed with, uh, with what became now uh, the German Empire, uniting Prussia with Bavaria and Baden and Württemberg into a united German empire. Um, they concluded the Treaty of Frankfurt, which not only signaled France's defeat, but severed Alsace and part of Lorraine from France and into the German empire. Rachel, thanks. That was a really great price here of the conflict. And now I want to turn next to a question which was submitted by Amelia Edwards. And let's go back to the beginning of the conflict, even a few years before because she wants to know what were the motivations for both sides in entering the conflict. And I wonder if I could broaden that out a little bit to ask you, what were the main causes of the Franco-Prussian War? What did these two, the two nations, what were they seeking to gain from going to war with one another? Well, that's always a complicated question because there was a trigger event, which was a conflict over who would take the throne in Spain. And there was a conflict between France and, and Prussia over uh, influencing that decision. But that's really the, just the trigger, a dynastic uh, succession question. If we want to understand why this war came to be, on the, on the German side, Prussia had been maneuvering toward unification over the previous years. Um, of course, German unification had been on the table for decades and had been seriously attempted in 1848 as part of a more leftist democratic revolution that was attempted in, in 1848. But what Bismarck did is he changed the unification problem from one on the left to one on the right. So he was seeking to unify Germany under a strong monarch, namely uh, William. And so over the course of the 1860s, Bismarck was able to build up the Prussian army, uh, go to war first against Denmark and then later against Austria, and then finally against France to create alliances and to strong arm German states into being part of this uh, first North German Confederation and then finally into the German Empire. So for Bismarck, the Franco-Prussian War assisted with this project of unification in two ways. First, he coveted the territories of Alsace and part of Lorraine, which he believed to be historically part of Germany. And second, it was an opportunity to build the sense of nationalism among the German people. Even though the war started as a war between these imperial leaders, it became a war in which 
ordinary Germans, ordinary French people became engaged on a much more nationalistic level. And so when they use this opportunity to to declare that Germany was now an empire, that rested not only on the negotiations with princes and kings, which it certainly did, but also on the hearts and minds of ordinary people. So you mentioned the word nationalism there. Did that really play into the conflict? Was that a motivating factor on on both sides? That emerged pretty quickly after the war was declared in July of 1870. It wasn't so much that nationalism made the war happen, but after the war was declared on July 15th, by August, by the time the battles were actually engaged in the very early days of August of 1870, uh, many people had you know, gone out into the streets, had celebrated, had waved flags, um, and felt like they were a part of something bigger than themselves, saw themselves as part of a bigger nation than their, themselves or their village communities or their towns. And that, to me, is the very definition of nationalism. It is the sense that you see yourself as something bigger and that you are willing to die and to kill others for the sake of that vision. And to look at it from the French perspective, how worried, how concerned were they by the rise of Prussia and the prospects of German unification? Was that something that kept their their leaders awake at night? Absolutely. And this, from the French perspective, was part of the reason for going to war. Now, Napoleon III himself had always lived under the shadow of his much more famous uncle, of course, right, the Napoleon from the the first part of the century. And so he sought, during his entire 20-year reign, he sought to establish himself as a powerful military leader. And he was never able to pull that off and had some embarrassments when it came to his attempt at at shaping the course of the war between Prussia and Austria in 1866. And so as it became clear that Prussia was becoming the dominant German state, it became ever more um, clear that that France wanted to challenge that power, that France wanted to show that they could test their mettle, that Napoleon III could test his mettle against the rising Prussian state. Okay, so it's quite evident already that there's two figures that kind of cast quite a long shadow over the war and the countdown to the war, and that is Otto von Bismarck and, as you just mentioned, Napoleon. I mean, how did they compare as leaders and how did the Franco-Prussian War affect their respective careers and reputations? Uh, very, very opposite in many ways. So on the one hand, Napoleon III by this time was quite ill. He had suffered a number of defeats. He moved into battle as the head of his, his armies, but in a, very painfully. He could barely ride his horse. And he chose to be out there with his armies, uh, which put him, of course, in a vulnerable position so that when they did start to suffer defeats as Prussia started to invade France in August of 1870, and then finally, when faced with defeat on September 1 in Sedan, he was personally seen as responsible for these losses, along with his leading generals. But certainly, Napoleon III was bore the, the main responsibility, and that's why he was overthrown just a few days later. He eventually made his way to England, um, and he died a few years later. On the other hand, Bismarck, um, who was the kind of the political genius behind this, he wasn't a military person, although he enjoyed wearing his reservist uniform, much to the chagrin of Prussian military leaders, um, and certainly had conflict with those military leaders, including Helmut von Mocha. But Bismarck was able to 
work with, manipulate, negotiate with not only his own king, William, but also with the kings and princes and dukes of the German states to figure out what did they need, how could he play them off of each other, and throughout the fall of 1870 to negotiate treaties so that by January, all of them, including Bavaria, including Baden, were willing to stand up and say, long live uh, Wilhelm, the emperor of, uh, of the Germans. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot slash history extra. Okay, I'm now going to turn to a question from Danny Buck, and that is, what changed from the successful French campaigns earlier in the 19th century to the Franco-Prussian War? So what gave the Prussians the edge over their French adversaries? And could the French in any way be accused of complacency? I think complacency is one way to describe how they viewed their ability to prepare for war. The French had a strong reputation. They had been successful. They were a large army. They were a professional army, and so many had served for many, many years in, in the army. What particularly bedeviled the French was that at the moment of mobilization, the size of the armies in 1870 got away from their ability to mobilize and to concentrate their armies. So over the course of decades, armies had grown so much bigger so that they were, by 1870, they were fielding hundreds of thousands of men in the field instead of tens of thousands back in the time of the great Napoleon. And so it was just so much more difficult and required so much more planning, planning that Prussia was undertaking. Prussia did mobilization games so that they could reduce their time to mobilization down from, you know, several weeks down to just a couple of weeks, which every day mattered um, in that particular kind of conflict. They were ready to go. It wasn't perfect. The Prussian mobilization wasn't perfect by any stretch. But one thing that they did that proved to be 
highly important to their success, is they separated the concept of mobilization, that is to say, to get soldiers up and ready and moving toward the field of battle, and concentration, which is actually organizing the troops and getting them ready to actually fight. Because they were able to separate this, they were able to move many more men into battle with their equipment, with their medical supplies, with all the horses, um, you know, with all the guns, and they were able to do so in a way that was much more organized. The French had a, a much more disorganized approach. They sent their men to depots to gather supplies before sending them to the front, so men were crisscrossing across the, the entire um, French country um, and trying to find where they actually needed to go. It wasn't just that that was um, a little bit slower. It was also more demoralizing. So f the French soldiers were going into the battle feeling like they were tired, they had marched, they had trained across the country, um, and they'd, they'd done that for weeks, and now they were exhausted before they even had the chance to fight. Okay, so let's talk about a couple of the battles, and you mentioned Sudan as being a critical moment in the war. Can you tell us a little bit about that and maybe mention one or two other clashes that really changed, you know, the trajectory of the conflict? Sure. Well, maybe I'll start with with some of the earlier battles. There were a series of battles about both in Alsace and a few in, in Lorraine that kind of opened the door for the Prussians to come in. And that was in early um, August of 1870, after which the main French army under Patrice MacMahon retreated away from Alsace, swung ar around to the west, and eventually, uh, in order to find supplies and to evade uh, where the Prussians were moving, made their way up north to the border with Belgium, where they became trapped around Sedan. And so at first you think, how did they get all the way from Alsace to Sedan? Well, it was not a very well-planned trajectory. Before we get to Sedan, there was a set of crucial battles with the other wing of the French army. So this was the wing that was headed by Achille Bazin. And these battles unfolded around the city of Metz in the middle of August, three battles in and around Metz that tied that particular army down and ended up leading them to retreat into the city of Metz. So at this point, you have half of the army in Metz under Bazan, who then proceed to be stuck there for two months before they finally admit defeat. And on the other hand, you've got the, the other wing of the French army that have swung around all the way from Alsace and then up to Sedan on the border with Belgium. And they are now about to face the brunt of the Prussian armies. So on September 1st, 1870, they end up going into battle in and around the fortress city of Sedan. And the Prussians end up encircling the entire city. There was also, during that same battle on September 1st, there were also serious fighting in a suburb known as Baze outside of Sedan, just a couple kilometers to the southeast of Sedan. And this was a battle that engaged much of the civilian population in this suburb. That was a suburb that ended up being almost completely destroyed during the course of that day and saw a number of, a, a number of, of war atrocities that unfolded. It's difficult to get all the details about what happened on that day, but it is clear that this was a conflict in which civilians, men, women, children, uh, were caught up. And that fighting ended up coloring the rest of the war and coloring how French and Germans viewed each other for the decades to come. And am I right in saying that Napoleon himself was captured at Sedan? He surrendered after the battle. He surrendered on September 2nd. Um, they let him go on his own reconnaissance. He ended up making his way to England. Um, but he did have to surrender his sword. He did meet first with Bismarck and then with the king, in which he surrendered his armies. Now, he did not surrender France at that time, which was a critical 
part of the story. That is what let the door open for the government of national defense to continue the war after September 4th. Now, what was the the rest of Europe thinking as all this unfolded? Because I've got a question here from James Dedders, and he asks, could the Franco-Prussian War have led to wider conflicts in 1871 involving other European countries rallying behind either Prussia or France? What did the other great European powers make of the conflict? And was there any temptation for them to get involved themselves? Absolutely. That's a that's a terrific question. And there are shades of 1914, of course, as you start to ask those questions. For instance, all eyes were on Belgium and whether they would be invaded. And certainly England was interested to see that Belgium would not be invaded, and it was not. So England remained neutral. France was very keen to try to involve the Italians, to try to involve the Austrians. And after some dancing around, they realized that France was likely to be unsuccessful and they decided not to get involved. Russia was interested in trying to take advantage of this moment to move into spaces in Crimea, which it had lost during the Crimean War in the 1850s. So you see some dynamics that sound remarkably familiar, actually, um, both to the 20th century and to today. But in the end, all the other great powers in Europe wanted to remain neutral, did not want to get involved, were eager for this war to come to an end, because they were largely concerned to avoid an overly strong German power in the center of Europe. They did not want to see France get dismantled. They wanted to see the war come to a swift conclusion. There was an attempt to have a diplomatic conversation in the fall and early winter of 1870, but Bismarck basically tried to maneuver to a prevent the French from fully participating in that discussion. And so that did not contribute to the end of the war. So what happened after Sedan then? You said there was a, was it a government of national unity in France. Is it correct to call them that? What happened with that? So the government of national defense after Sedan was formed on September 4th. It was a very moderate government, moderate in a pro-democratic, pro-republic. They wanted to establish a republic, so that is to say a government without a king, but with uh, an elected official of some kind. Um, But they weren't quite ready to hold elections yet during the actual war. Um, And so that became a source of conflict. And those who were further to the left, who wanted to see a more more radical democracy, who wanted to include social issues along with political issues, those who were workers in Paris who wanted to see their voices, to see their neighborhoods, be able to flex their muscles, uh, very quickly in the fall of 1870, started to splinter uh, from the government of national defense. So a very familiar story of how when there's a revolution, the sides that agree to topple whoever is in power end up disagreeing amongst themselves. And that unfolded uh, throughout the course of the fall of 1870 and well into the spring of 1871, setting the stage for the Paris Commune that came after the war. What was the Paris Commune? I guess a lot of our listeners would have heard of it without knowing a great deal about it. I mean, can you briefly explain what makes the Paris Commune so significant? And can it, for example, be described maybe as like the first example of socialism or communism in practice? It is, as you might imagine, an event that bears a lot of different interpretations. So the Paris Commune arose in March of 1871, just a month and a half after the conclusion of this war. 
and it lasted until the end of May 1871. So just six weeks of the Paris Commune, and yet had an enormous impact. So what was the Paris Commune? It was primarily Parisians who wanted to seek autonomy from the government of national defense, who did not believe that the government of national defense actually had the best interests of Parisians at heart. And that was both due to some short-term reasons as well as some longer-term. So on the short-term, they felt that Paris had remained strong throughout the entire course of the war. Paris had become besieged starting in mid-September, shortly after the Battle of Sedan, was bombarded in January, but never surrendered. So Paris stayed strong, and it was only the government of national defense that finally decided to concede defeat. But there's a lot more than that. Long-standing neighborhood conflicts, senses of solidarity among neighbors living in Paris had led to a sense that the city, the neighborhood, was a much more important unit to them to, than, than France itself. And so there was a hope that was never fully um, articulated in a way that was agreed upon by everyone. That's why it's complicated. But there was a hope that Parisians could establish some kind of new utopia in which Parisians could determine their own fate. Paris had been at the whim of national governments, monarchs, um, invading countries for a very, very long time, and Parisians were attempting to uh, rule for themselves. And unfortunately, the government of national defense crushed the Paris Commune. The government of national defense would not stand for Paris to be an autonomous government. By the end of May of 1871, the government of national defense, by this time led by Adolphe Thiers, marshaled its armies, many of the same men who had just been defeated just a couple months earlier, to invade Paris and crush the commune. And while there is some dispute about the number of dead, it was a very bloody conflict in which tens of thousands of Parisians died, and then many more were deported later. Given that, and here's a question which has been submitted by Katie Marshall. Given what happened in, in the war that preceded it, to what extent, she asked, can the Franco-Prussian War be characterised as a, a national trauma for France? How did defeat in the conflict impact the nation, the, the nation's psyche? Absolutely. This was a very traumatic war, and in so many different ways. So you might think of the 140,000 soldiers who died during the course of the war, right? So even though it was a much shorter war than the Great War that unfolded 40 years later, it was just as bloody over the course of those six months. Then let's think about the villagers, the townspeople, who had armies passing through month after month, both French armies and German armies, all of whom are hungry and looking for food, and who increasingly are not going to pay for it or, you know, offer any kind of recompense for taking that food. And there's no guidance to these individuals when the army comes to town. There's not a playbook that says, this is how you do this. They had to figure it out. And of course, sometimes people wanted to fight back. They might have rifles. There might be snipers. That opened the door for retaliation. If, let's say, the mayor of a small town 
decided to pay the requisition, they might then suffer from being seen as um, as rolling over to the Prussians. If they resisted, they might welcome retaliation. And so there was a very, very difficult position for these individuals. Then let's talk about the besieged cities. I mentioned Paris already that was besieged for uh, over four months and bombarded. But there are many, many others besides. Strasbourg is a great example, was besieged for six weeks, uh, bombarded. Hundreds of people were killed, sometimes in their own bedrooms. Um, that is a traumatic experience. People didn't use the same kind of words that we would use today. They didn't talk about PTSD, uh, for instance, and they didn't tend to talk about mental trauma. But it's very difficult to imagine that people didn't suffer that kind of trauma having gone through these experiences and that they would roll over you know, into generations. But I think the listener is also asking about sort of a national sense of trauma, a sense of, you know, did we get defeated and then how do we, you know, how do we recover from this? For many French, the experience of defeat in the immediate term was one that they blamed their political leaders on. Many of them blamed Napoleon III. Others blamed the government of national defense. And this became the source of bitter political battles throughout the 1870s. By the 1880s, however, as the war receded into memory, but still is only 10 or 15 years in the past, many French people started to see themselves as the source of blame, saying, we should have been more prepared. We should have been better able to serve in the army. We should have trained our sons better. We should have had more uh, Red Cross organizations. And so they started to say, how can we prepare for the, the next conflict that they believed was inevitable at some point? And I believe that it's that kind of conversation, that sort of how do we prepare ourselves for war, um, that is the most lasting effect of the conflict. Many people will say that it's the bitterness over the loss of Alsace and part of Lorraine that is the primary source of bitterness. But I don't think so. I think when after the initial um, transfer, and of course people were disappointed about that, but they weren't looking to actually go to war to have revenge on Germany for the loss of those territories. That's not what caused World War I. That, that sense of loss, that disappointment, that sense of perhaps we are to blame, that was what weighed heavily on French civilians. Derek Hoyton on social media just to elaborate on what you've just been saying, wants to know to what extent did the French see the First World War as revenge for what happened in the Franco-Prussian War? So are you arguing that actually it's not that easy to make a direct link between the two conflicts as maybe some people have. Exactly, exactly. Were there some who couched their entrance into the Great War as revenge? Of course there were. But that, to me, is not the dominant. When I had spent uh, my, my, actually, the earliest part of my research was in precisely this question. This is how I became interested in the Franco-Prussian War. How is it possible that the continent walked into World War I? And um, and it's not so much that sense of revenge as the sense of inevitability around war. But would you argue that it's a little bit of a cliche then that the Franco-Prussian War was a massive contributor to the First World War in, in, in terms of French motivations? I would say that, yeah, I think it's a bit of a cliche to say that the Franco-Prussian War directly led into World War I. After all, a lot of people expected the next big war to be between France and Britain. 
uh, Britain was considered to be the potential next enemy. And of course, then, uh, you know, eventually there was the Entente with Britain in the early 20th century. I do think it's a cliche to say that the Franco-Prussian War directly led into the Great War. Certainly there's elements of it. And there's certainly the way that the the Great War unfolded was deeply impacted by the Franco-Prussian War. The treatment of civilians in Belgium when Germany marched into Belgium in 1914 was directly related to the fears of French snipers in 1870, which certainly impacted the way that the German army acted in 1914. But it's too simplistic to say that the diplomatic issues from 1871 were what led directly to the war in 1914. There are far more complicated and um, difficult questions regarding statesmanship, leadership, diplomacy, nationalism that unfolded in 1914. We can rewind now to the 1870s again. And I want to put a question to you, which was submitted by Kirsten Finch. And actually, this is submitted by quite a few people um, wanted to know the answer to this question. And that is, would the German states have unified had it not been for the Franco-Prussian War? I mean, how important was the conflict itself and victory in the conflict to the unification of Germany? By 1870, the North German Confederation already brought together in very important ways most of the German states. Austria-Hungary, of course, was on its own, and it was no longer seen as uh, being part of this unification process. And then what was left were the South German states, Bavaria, Baden, Württemberg, and they were actually in alliances with the North German Confederation and with Prussia that required them to join them in a, in a time of conflict. So when Bismarck saw his opening, this is what led the, him to then say, okay, instead of fighting against Bavaria, as we did back in 1866, they are now going to fight on our side. So the war absolutely was a crucial moment in terms of unification, but Bismarck was looking for his opportunity. If it wasn't going to happen through a war with France, he was going to find another way. And recall that Bismarck ends up being chancellor of the German Empire for almost two more decades after 1870. He had a long career ahead of him, and I believe that he would have continued to seek opportunities even if the war with France had not occurred. Now, Germany with sort of Prussia as its powerhouse sort of developed a reputation for militarism, didn't it, over the succeeding years? I mean, To what extent was that a a result of the conflict? It was both cause and consequence of the conflict. Prussia had already moved to a system of almost universal conscription. Um, So almost all of its men of military age were serving in the army. Um, That, of course, contributes to the militarization, not only strengthening the army, but it affects towns, it affects you know, where soldiers were living, it affects families, it affects the sense of masculinity, like what does it mean to be a man? It means you're a soldier. Um, so that is a contributor to to both the, the cause and then a, a consequence of the war in that after Prussia's strong success, Europeans across the continent adopted the model of universal or near universal conscription of men into their armies. Of course, Britain did not do that, um, did not move to conscription until well into the Great War. But elsewhere on the continent, that was the model that was following Prussia. And I guess it's fair to say that that would have enormous consequences in the following century. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. So now the, the armies that seemed so large in 1870 at the hundreds of thousands were now armies of the millions. Um, and so once armies entered into war in 1914, it was very difficult to pull back. How are you going to pull back after the sacrifices that occurred even in August and September of 1914? Um, the, those very early months were so devastating and involved so many millions of people that the idea that you could then just say, okay, let's you know, come to a negotiated uh, peace seemed unimaginable to so many people. And how did the events of 1870-71 affect the balance of power in across Europe beyond the German states and France? And how did things look after that in the following decades? Well, there still was this very strong sense that a balance of power ought to be achieved. But the preponderance of power was now shifting toward the German Empire instead of toward France. And so France spent much of the next decades trying to reassert itself, even as it became a republic. And everyone was looking to Germany and to seeing what it was going to do, especially as it became a struggle for power, not only on the continent, but across the world. You know, this next wave of imperialism, uh, which led to Britain and France and Germany and Italy and others seeking territories in Africa and Asia. So there was very much the belief that Europe should stay balanced, that there shouldn't be one power that, that dominated, and yet everyone was looking for their piece of the pie, believing that this was a zero-sum game in which territory was still the way to measure success. And so in, in that respect, did it inflame tensions between Berlin and London in the fact that Germany joined the scramble for you know, imperial possessions around the world? Absolutely. So many people were concerned that that would be the source of a next major conflict would be um, either between France and, and Britain or Germany and Britain, and that any of these colonial conflicts could be the source of that next conflict. And how important is the Franco-Prussian War viewed in France and Germany today? I mean, is it is it something that historians of those two countries are still very much interested in? Do they still study study the war in great detail? It is certainly studied, and we just passed the 150th anniversary, and so that gave rise to a, a number of, of interesting uh, colloquia and, and books and you know interest in the conflict. I would say, though, the intervening years, the 20th century, of course, overshadows the Franco-Prussian War. Um, it, it overshadows it in terms of uh, local memories. If you go around France, which was the site, of course, of all but one of the very earliest battles, there are monuments, there are tombs, particularly in areas around Sedan or in the east. There are, you can see war memorials. And in some towns like Chateau Dun still has an anniversary, not celebration, but more of a memorial in October to mark the day that it was uh, burned down. But overall, it's it's taken a, a backseat, and that's not a bad thing. It's an important conflict. It's a, it's a conflict that shaped the world. But I, I think when we consider whether memorial moments provide peace and solace versus do they provide fodder for feeling uh, anger? I would take either a silence that allows for more peace over a loud celebration that leads to anger any day. That was Rachel Crastle. Bismarck's War, the Franco-Prussian War and the Making of Modern Europe is out now published by Alan Lane. And if you're intrigued to know more, then check out In Our Times episode all about Bismarck. That's available now on BBC Sounds. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green.
collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.